Friends, we're going to study Luke chapter 1 this morning, the story of the birth of John the Baptist. And when that happens in Luke chapter 1, the Holy Spirit fills Zechariah, his father, and he makes this great and bold and beautiful prophecy. And we're going to pick that up in verse 68. These are the inspired words of Zechariah. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun rise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us as boldly and clearly and triumphantly as you, by your Holy Spirit, spoke to the people through your prophet Zechariah. Make us eager to hear and to learn and to respond to great covenant promises, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we've been in Luke for three weeks now, and we're neck deep into this study so far, and already there's this elephant in the room. There's something that's going on in this passage, and I know y'all are thinking about it, and I know you guys are whispering to each other about it, and no one's willing to say it out loud, and so as usual, I will be the guy in the room to make things awkward, and I'll just say what's on everybody's mind, and that is that Luke chapter 1 sounds awfully Jewish. It's Christmas. It's December. We want to talk about Jesus. We want to talk about the Advent, and we've been in Luke chapter 1 for three weeks, and I have only heard Jesus' name mentioned one time. I've heard more about Abraham and David than I have about Jesus, and I'm paying to be here to hear about Jesus at Christmas. Well, I'm glad we got that out in the open because we need to talk about that this morning that the advent, the coming of Jesus is a very, very new thing in the spirit and it's a very, very old thing in the story of God for our redemption. Now, Our family has taken to Columbia. We're not from here, but we love the city and we love the rivers in our city. If you're new here, you're in for a treat. We call the rivers the poor man's pool. And so our family is out there the 10 months out of the year when it's blazing hot and you need some reprieve. And and we have three rivers. You got the big, broad river that's nice and warm. And then you got the cold, crisp Saluda River. 
And you can actually stand on the point if you go to the zoo access to the river and park there and get on the path and turn left and walk down the path to Boyd Island. You can stand on Boyd Island and you can watch those two rivers come together and they create the Congaree River, which goes down to the Congaree Swamp. And you can play in all three of those rivers if your heart desires. But if you've ever been tubing on the Saluda or paddleboarding on the Saluda or swimming down the Saluda, you know that when you come to that point at Boyd Island, there's this cool little thing that happens where the rivers come together because there's this whole area where I'm in the cold Saluda and then I'm in the warm broad. And I can see the water is darker over here and then it's warm over here. And so we like to swim to the warm part and then swim to the cold part. And you can do that for a couple of hundred yards until they finally totally merge together, become the Congaree, and then it's one and the same river going forward. That's what the Gospels feel like in bringing the Old Testament and the New Testament together. You have this huge, wide, thundering river of Old Testament promises brimming with what God has been doing in salvation history coming in one direction and then all of a sudden you have this new crisp work of the spirit in the new testament coming in another direction and they don't cancel each other they converge on each other and for a whole season in there you can look to the left and say man that's old covenant language and look to the right and say man that's new covenant language until you swim in this thing for a little bit and you can't tell the one from the other because they become one single river of the promise of God. Now, Zechariah is standing on Boyd Island. In these few verses, you can look left and say, that's old covenant language. And you can look right and say, that's new covenant language. But by the time you get to Easter, there is one single saving river in the providence of God. So here's our main idea this morning. What God promised in the old covenant to Abraham and David is fulfilled in the new covenant in Jesus. What God promised in the old covenant to Abraham and David is fulfilled in the new covenant in Jesus. Now I'm going to throw that fancy word covenant around and when I say that I simply mean God's promise or his oath or his contract to his people. God is a, is a covenant-making God. He makes oaths, promises to his people. He's under no obligation to do that, and yet he does it throughout all of Scripture, and he makes those promises. And for simplicity's sake, I'm simply going to use Old Testament and Old Covenant interchangeably, New Testament and New Covenant interchangeably. So let's think a little bit about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, because... For starters, an obvious question would be, if I'm new to this whole thing, why even spend any time on the Old Covenant? If that's already gone, if that already happened, if that's already in the past, and now we're swimming in the new river of the New Covenant, why would I even go back upstream to hear about the Old Covenant to begin with? Why does that matter to me as a New Testament believer? In fact, one megachurch pastor famously said that we as Christians need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. He said all of our problems in the church are 
hatred and lack of love and bigotry all stem from the Old Testament. If we could just get away from that thing, it's not indwelling sin, it's the Old Testament's fault, we would be okay. So let's unhitch ourselves. But we can't do that because God presents his new covenant salvation as an expansion and a fulfillment of everything he said in the old covenant. Imagine you had a a loved one come to you and say, I sat down and wrote you a huge love letter. It went on and on. And in that letter, I poured out my heart and soul. I shared my character. I shared my desire for you. I shared my past. I shared where we're going together. I shared it all. And then I was done with that letter and I thought, man, that's, that's awfully long to give to somebody. So then I turned around and I wrote a shorter letter and I expanded on everything and I said everything I promised in the old lover letter, I'm gonna double down and do in the new letter and I gave you the two-page letter. You'd be thrilled to get it but you'd want to get your hands on that big letter, right? I want to see where this came from and how this is developing. If God gives us an inspired Bible that is 77% old covenant as his means to reveal to us his glory, character, faithfulness, love, full salvation, plan for Jesus, then the better we understand the old is the better we'll understand the new. We can't escape. We can't get away from it. It is in our blood. The old covenant is here. Now, Zechariah is prophesying in the spirits, but as a man, he could not have known anything about the new. He only knows in his mind and heart about the old covenant. In fact, he says in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That's how narrow his focus is. He can only imagine that God is doing something for the people of Israel as he had always promised. But as he goes on in his prophecy, I see him pulling three themes from the old covenant that God is going to do. He looks back over his Old Testament and he says, I know that whatever God is going to do, he's going to do these three things. Number one, he's going to keep his promises. He said that all throughout the Old Covenant. Number two, he's going to save from enemies. And number three, he's going to give his presence. He's going to keep his promises. He's going to save from enemies. And he's going to give his presence. And it's like Zechariah says those things as a student of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, and then the Spirit picks up on those things and expands them in ways we can't even imagine. And so with each of those three, I want to hear what the Old Covenant says, I want to hear the New Covenant expansion, and then I want to apply these things to ourselves. So let's talk about these New Testament, New Covenant promise expansions. First of all, Zechariah says that God keeps his promises. That's an Old Testament, Old Covenant idea. And listen to all the language he says about God keeping his covenant promises. Verse 69, he says this is all going to happen in the house of his servant David. He's thinking about 2 Samuel 7, that God will raise up a king, that, that Judah will always have a king on the throne. He's thinking about that promise. Verse 70, he spoke it by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Everything in the minor and major prophets, that's here. 
Verse 72, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Isn't it telling? I want you to think about this. Isn't it telling that not a single gospel writer can tell the story of Jesus without mentioning David, Abraham, Jacob, and Moses? Isn't that interesting? Like, we could do that, right? I could tell you the story of Jesus. I could bust out John 3.16 and tell you about Jesus, and that's cool if I'm on a bus ride with you and we got 30 minutes together. But the gospel writers, including the Gentile Luke, cannot tell you the story of Jesus without reaching back to these same names. And by bringing up the patriarchs and the prophets, the Holy Spirit is saying through Zechariah, whatever God is about to do is only ever a continuation of what he's always been doing. There's something brilliant here, but it's not new here. It's a continuation of his promise. That's the old covenant. The new covenant expansion is this. It's in that key word, mercy. The mercy that was promised to the patriarchs, verse 72, has now come through Jesus in verse 78. The mercy that's happening now in Advent is the same mercy that was promised long ago to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, I will make you a great nation and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus has now come, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God for the nations. Promised in the old, expanded in the new. How do we think about that and apply that today as believers? And the application is, God keeps his promises. Do you know that, church? God keeps his promises. Turn to your neighbor and say, I serve a promise-keeping God. Tell them this morning, practice with each other, I serve a promise-keeping God. God cannot make a promise and then not keep it. He cannot speak a word and then that word become untrue. He cannot make a providential plan and it not come to pass. Every word God says is yes and amen. Every promise God makes is inevitable. God can give Abraham a miracle baby that will anticipate a miracle blessing and he can sit on that promise for millennia. And what feels like 2,000 years to us watching Old Testament history is but two days to God because Peter says a thousand years is like a day to him. And though we might think his promises are late, they are always on time and in the fullness of time, old covenant promises become new covenant realities. God is keeps his promises. It's in his blood. It's what he does. He would never do otherwise. Zechariah knows it. The Holy Spirit relishes in it. And we are reminded old and new, we serve a promise-keeping God. Well, number two, he says not only does he keep his promises, but God saves from enemies. 
God saves from enemies. Now, the old covenant is here because did anybody notice how violent Mary and Zechariah's songs really are? It's funny that we sing Mary's song, her Magnificat, before the sermon in Advent, and you hear the whole church belting out in one voice, he scatters the rich and proud, and we're just singing it like it doesn't matter. The kings of the earth he cast from their thrones, we're just singing away, and I get a little more quiet at that part because I don't know how rich and how powerful those people are getting scattered. I mean, I'm not American rich. I know a lot of people richer than me, but I am global rich. I have a lot of money compared to the world. So it's not clear who's getting scattered according to Mary. But Zechariah has no problem picking up that same fame and saying things we would be embarrassed to say at the Christmas dinner table when he says in verses 71 and 74, save from our enemies and the hand of those who hate us delivered from the hand of our enemies, what gives? I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. I thought he was only interested in souls and not in structures of power or injustice. I thought he was here to get church members and not to shake up the created order. But Zechariah is speaking true old covenant words that keep us honest about what Jesus has come to do. The old covenant is clear that God will judge humanity and those who have made their God money, sex, and power at the expense of the weak they will feel his full wrath. Now, the new covenant doesn't change that. It doesn't disagree with that. It only takes that same idea and expands it further when it reminds us what was still true in the old covenant, the proud, the rich, the powerful, as great an enemy as they are, are not humanity's greatest enemies. They can hurt the body, but they can't touch the soul. We have much greater enemies to be delivered from, and Zechariah names them in verses 77 and 79. They are the two-headed dragon of sin and death. The most heinous enemies that we have are sin and death. And the new covenant speaks directly to them. Old covenant, new covenant. The application is this. God still saves from enemies. And he saves from the wickedness that is out there. And he saves from the wickedness that is in here. God will judge the wickedness out there outside of his covenant people. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And John the Baptist will say, the ax is already at the root of the tree to cut down those who are unrepentant. And Paul will say, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It is good news that Jesus will judge the wicked out there apart from his covenant people. 
the proud who scoff at God, the rich who rob the poor, the powers that wage unjust war, those who persecute believers, those who prey on children, the racist, the abusive, the vile, the malicious, the divisive, the callous. Don't let a baby in a manger fool you. When Jesus was born in Jerusalem, Herod and the leaders trembled because they know their Old Testament better than we do. Jesus will be good news of great joy for all peoples, but not all people. Predators will pay, and they will pay with their souls. Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But thanks be to God, even though we were counted among the wicked ourselves, God will also save from the wickedness that's in here. There's nothing out there in the world that isn't in here in the soul of the church. The world is not a different category of sinner than the church. The difference between the world and the church is not the amount of sin, it's not the type of sin. It's not the frequency of sin. That's why when Paul writes to new believers, he says, and such were you, you were these people. The only difference is that the wickedness in here is answered in this Advent promise according to Zechariah to give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of sins. He has answered the question of sin out there and he has answered the question of sin in here the enemies of sin and death will be destroyed well number three as if that wasn't enough to keep his promises to save from enemies finally God gives us his presence he gives us his presence and we don't have time to do the old and new and application here. In fact, if we had all afternoon together, it would be an incredible Bible study to go from Genesis to Malachi and just study the idea of God's presence. How does he appear to his people? How does he relate to his people? How is he physically present among his people? To watch that through the old, whole Old Testament. But for now, we will stick with Zechariah's simplicity when he says in verse 68... God has visited his people. That's something he has done. But verse 78, God shall visit his people. In the Old Testament, he did visit his people. We have a theology of the, the presence of God from the Old Testament. But something new is about to happen. And Zechariah prophesies, God shall visit his people. Now, I find that most delightful confusion of the covenants for Zechariah in verse 76. Look there with me. Zechariah says, and you child, he's talking about his son, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and this is what you're going to do, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, in your Bible, like my Bible, the word Lord there is capital L, but lowercase o-r-d, right? So, 
This is a different word than when you read Lord with all capitals. That's the transliteration of Yahweh, the divine name. That is clearly speaking about God as the divine name, but this is a lowercase rest of the word. This is Lord from the Greek word kurios, which could translate it, could mean Lord or master or sir. You could use it of God. You could use it of a master of a household. And so there's a little ambiguity here whenever that word is being used. But here's my point, and I love this surprise. When Zechariah prophesied that John, his son, would be a prophet of the Most High to go before the Lord, who do you think Zechariah thought that the Lord was? When he said, Lord, go before the Lord, who was Zechariah thinking about? And I bet you my 401k that when Zechariah said you will be going before the Lord, he could have only thought you would go before the Lord God, as in God the Father, as in God the Father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who dwells in the heavens and has made the Holy of Holies his footstool in the temple where Zechariah serves. He was thinking, my son John the Baptist, he's going to get out there and he's going to drum up repentance among the people and he's going to bring them back here to the temple to worship the Lord God. Little could Zechariah know that in this marvelous twist of the covenant, the people wouldn't come back to the temple. The temple would go to the people. Zechariah thought his son was going to go before the Lord God to prepare his way, but he was really going to go before the Lord Jesus to prepare his way. And Jesus' new covenant ways are this. He has come to keep his promises. He has come to save us from our enemies. And he has come to give us his presence, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you that you are a promise-keeping God. Everything you said you will do and do well and do wonderfully. You have visited us in the old covenant and you have now visited us this advent in the new covenant and you will visit again with great and precious promises. We rejoice, we celebrate, we depend on you as our promise-keeping God in Jesus' precious name. Amen.